0: turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to read verses 6 and 7, which will be our text for this morning's sermon. If you're a guest with us, welcome. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are walking verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Colossians, section by section. And we're actually just going to focus on two verses this morning, which are really the heart of the letter. They're the theme verses, uh, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. So if you'll join me in reading those verses, We'll do so now. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you ever feel like there's a large gap between what the gospel says is true of us and about us and what you experience and how you view yourself? Do you ever feel like there's a chasm between what you say you believe and what you actually experience? Do you ever feel like the longest journey is from your head to your heart, to your hands? Getting the beliefs out in your life? Do you ever read John 7, 38? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And just thought, really? Maybe a trickle here and there on my best days. Do you ever feel like the man in the Gospel of Mark verse chapter 8 who's blind and his friends brought him to Jesus and Jesus spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him and he asked, do you see anything? And Jesus said, I see, or the man said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Do you ever feel like you're there? You ever feel discouraged by your lack of spiritual progress and exhausted by your efforts? Have you had enough of Jesus to spoil your enjoyment of the world, but not enough to be content in him alone? Do you know how to move forward? How can we connect the grand promises of God to the gritty details of our daily lives? If the gospel is so supernatural, then why doesn't it seem to make more of a difference in the lives of so many who claim to believe it? How am I meant to feel as a Christian? I mean, you can go to an evangelical church on a Sunday morning and be told, Christian, you're loved by God no matter what you've done. God cannot love you more than he does. And then you can go to another evangelical church and hear, you're a wretched sinner. The emphasis can feel very different, and yet both churches are teaching truth. Well, if you could identify with any of those questions, then Colossians 2, 6, and 7 really holds the key to closing the gap. These two verses are the heart of Colossians, and in many ways they're the heart of the Christian faith. In these two verses, Paul succinctly summarizes the basic response he wants from us and from his readers at Colossae and from his readers in Owensboro. In these two verses, Paul succinctly summarizes that we have entered into relationship with Christ and His Lordship, but we are called to work out what that means, both in thinking and acting and living under his lordship. I was reminded of a story one time. Imagine a little boy wearing his father's t-shirt. Do you ever do this when you're a kid? Or maybe if you have kids, you've seen your own kids do this. They'll sometimes put on your clothes, or maybe you put on your dad's clothes as a little boy. Now, you were already fully clothed, right? But you're still just a little boy. You'll have to grow up and you'll have to grow in until that covering that you've put on actually fits you. And in some ways, we're, it's, the, it's the same in the Christian life. We have put on our big brother's shirt. His name is Jesus Christ. It's a robe of righteousness that completely covers us. But it's way too big for us. And we're called to grow up into that. To grow up into that clothing that we have on. So life in Christ then is growing up into the new reality which has already been put onto our lives. It doesn't completely fit us yet. It completely clothes us, but we're not striving to attain it. We already have the shirt, but we're striving to lay hold of what is already ours. We're trying to grow up into it. And in the main, there are two competing voices, I think, today in the church about telling us how we get to grow up into that shirt. How do we get there? One, I'll call the way of extravagant grace, which is just believe, and the other we'll call the way of radical discipleship, which is just obey. These two can be helpfully illustrated, so let me give you a couple of illustrations. The first way some people call us to grow up into the shirt is just through extravagant grace, just believe. So people like Brennan Manning will come along and write the following. My message unchanged for more than 50 years is this, God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. It's the message of grace. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at ten till five. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient. Grace is enough. Or another person will say, Everything in the Christian life is of grace. We're justified by grace alone. We're sanctified by grace alone. So the only way to change in the Christian life is to believe the gospel more and more. Please don't tell me how to live. Just tell me to look to Jesus. And that's absolutely true on one level. Our union with Christ is fixed and unalterable. It does not rise or fall with our faith or the quality of our lives with what we've done or what we failed to do. Our union with Christ is as certain as Christ's irrevocable love, which does not wax or wane. It is as sure as Christ's grip on our lives and His promise that nothing can snatch us out of His hand, John 10, 28. However, there there is another voice, and it's the voice of what we'll call radical discipleship. Just obey. We hear this in the voice of our brother Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says the following, Cheap grace is a deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace means the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Those who try to use grace as a dispensation for following Christ are simply deceiving themselves. We confess that although our church is orthodox, as far as our doctrine of grace is concerned, we're no longer sure that we're members of the church which follows its Lord. These people would say, The New Testament contains loads of commands. I need someone to shout at me to stop messing around and to start pursuing holiness. The best sermons are when the preacher leans close into the microphone and shouts in a voice like Gandalf the wizard, flee temptation, you fools. I love a good beat up in a sermon. And this is true in a sense as well. Our communion with God does change and vary. It is affected by our faith and what we choose to do or not do. To be clear, the love of God for us does not change, but our experience of His love does. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, to the obedient child. Jesus is saying that the way we respond to God will affect our experience of God. If we trust God and obey Him, then Jesus promises He'll manifest Himself to us. He'll make Himself more apparent. Jesus couldn't be clearer that we will know God better by obeying Him more. So which is it? Well, so many Christians lack a category for holding these two voices together, and that's why Colossians 2, 6, and 7 is in the Bible. The voice that says the gospel of extravagant grace and the voice that of radical discipleship are met in this verse. The gospel of extravagant grace that requires nothing from us is the same gospel as the gospel of radical discipleship that demands everything from us. Which is it? Come to Jesus and rest or come to Jesus and die? I think he said both. I think he said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I think he said take up your cross and follow me. Listening to either voice in isolation from the other is very dangerous. The call to be radical can leave many exhausted if it's not accompanied by the call of grace. At the same time, the call of grace, quote-unquote, can leave many apathetic if it's not equally met with a call of obedience. The problem with either just believe or just obey is that they separate what God has joined together. The work of Christ for us cannot be separated from the work of Christ in us. When we are united with Christ, we have full access into His amazing grace that covers us, and we also have full access to His power that enables us to obey Him. The theme of the whole book of Colossians is that every believer is complete in Christ and that all the resources that we need to grow in grace are found in Him. And the process of deepening in the Christian life is not starting with Christ and moving on to something else, but it's starting on Christ and remaining dependent upon Him every step of the way as we're conformed to His image, which is the very image of the invisible God. So I want us to look at those two things today. I want us to look at both halves of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Notice with me, first of all, the first half, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, there's grace. You just took it in. You took Him in. Didn't have to earn it. Didn't have to work for it. You just received Him. But, Paul says, so walk in him. So I want us to look at both of those, and then we'll look at how the walk is to be done in the second half. So first point, the past grace of receiving Christ. Let's meditate for a moment on the gospel of extravagant grace. The past grace of receiving Christ. Just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. Think about this with me. This has already happened if you're a believer in this room. If you have received Christ the Lord, which is what it means to become a Christian, you accept Him and who He is and what He's taught, the teaching about Him into your life, you receive Him as your Lord, as the one who will now call the shots in my life, as the one under whose lordship I will live, as the one I'm following. I receive Him into my life. This has already happened. And when it did happen... Our status before God was permanently changed and fixed into a new status. It was the status of a child of God. And the knowledge of our status shapes our walk with Him. We need to make sure that we get things in the right order. Our past affects our present. The order is we receive Christ Jesus the Lord and we walk in Him. Not we walk in Him so we hope to receive Him one day. It's like Jesus reminded the woman who was caught in sin... He said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Not go and sin no more, lest I condemn you. But no, we get grace on the front end. We receive Christ and all that he is. He's not, being, he's not holding himself like part of himself off from us. Like, well, when you get a little more obedient, I'll give myself more to you. No, we get the whole Christ. We get the whole shirt. We're completely clothed. We get all of who he is and all of his benefits given to us. Have you ever asked the question, what does God think of me? How does God view me in Christ? Well, our status before God is unchanging. We've meditated on this a lot throughout Paul's letter to the Colossians. We've seen, guess what? We're qualified. We're delivered. We're transferred into the kingdom of His Son. We're forgiven of all our trespasses. We're reconciled to God we're filled, we're made alive, we're complete, we're victorious. All those are past tensed fixed realities of our status that cannot be changed. God loves us. But if you ever asked the question, how can God love me when I still sin? Because our status before Him is completely changed. We have the shirt. Imagine a millionaire who catches a teenage thief breaking into his house and he kindly decides that rather than having him arrested, he will adopt him as his own child. Now, legally, the boy becomes his son, right? But there's no biological or moral change at all within the boy. His genetic makeup isn't affected, but his status certainly is. Although it's a legal change, though it affects everything about the boy's status and his happiness and his future, he is now the son of a millionaire. And it's that truth that will begin to shape his character over time. And so we are not just pardoned before God, we are loved by God. We're not just declared righteous, we're adopted. We're not just liberated, we're awarded a title and right to eternal life the verdict is in. As we saw last week, there's no IOU left to be paid. We no longer live on trial with God. Some of you might be thinking though, but my faith isn't very strong. Well, your faith isn't what saves you. It's Christ who saves you through faith. There's a big difference. Your limpy little weak faith grabs hold of an omnipotent all-powerful Christ and it's him that saves you. Christ justifies you through faith. We talk about justification by faith alone, which we'll talk about more coming up in our October series, but make no mistake, it's not the faith that justifies, it's faith in Christ that justifies. Christ is the justifier of the one who has faith. The quality of our faith does not put us in a right standing before God, the object of our faith does. Faith does not contribute to our justification. It connects us with the Jesus who justifies us. It's not the strength of our faith that brings us righteousness. It's the strength of our Savior who brings us righteousness. Now, all that's true of us as believers in Christ. If we are are disciples of His, if we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, this is all true. This is our status, brothers and sisters. This This is what makes us sing this morning is that we're qualified and we're delivered and we're transferred and we're forgiven and we're redeemed and we're ransomed and we're adopted and we're complete. We're made alive, we're filled, we're victorious. This is not going to change for us. And so it's upon that grounding, upon that certainty, upon that confidence that we now move out in obedience to Jesus. And that's what Paul calls us to do here in verse 6. He says, "'Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord,' so walk in him. This is life with God. Walk, 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 walk. Pretty unspectacular, isn't it? It's not rare. You walk every day. It's not extraordinary. Nobody's going to come along and say, wow, cool walking, man. It's just ordinary. It's life. It's a slow, faithful, plod, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, forever, (laughs) all day long. And that's what makes Christianity so challenging sometimes is that it's just so daggone repetitive. It's just so every day. Again and again, every day, all the way, left, right, left, right, left, right. Faith, repentance, faith, repentance, faith, repentance, faith, repentance. Just like breathing, just walking. But the point of Paul is that we have a responsibility now. That just as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we must walk in Him. So this is point number two, the present responsibility of following Christ. While our status before God is unchanging, our walk with Him does change. Remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 23? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So we're called to continue in what we've believed? As we were reminded in chapter 1, verse 10, we can be more pleasing to our God so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this brings up a couple of more questions that we can tackle thinking through this. Does God's love for me vary then? Does it go up and down? While God's love is unconditional because we are united with Christ, because we are His sons and daughters, and He is our Father, His pleasure and displeasure with us as believers can vary widely. I mean, think of it as a parent. We've already used this illustration, I believe, in the Colossian series. But as a parent, we understand this completely. You can love a child profoundly and be profoundly displeased with them, but you love them no matter what. You lay your life down for them. give your life for them, but not everything they do necessarily brings a smile to your face, nor should it. It would reveal something profoundly wrong about you if you patted your kid on uh, the back for vehicular homicide intentionally, right? Good job. Just what I wanted you to do. So whether we please him or grieve him is conditional upon our obedience. We should Want to put a smile on the face of our Father? We should want to be well pleasing to Him. There are all sorts of ways we can bring pleasure to the Lord. Let me give you a couple of them. 2 Corinthians five nine. So we make it our goal to please Him, where we are at home, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. There's faithful ministry pleasing the Lord. What about obedience from children? Well, obedience from children pleases the Lord. Colossians three twenty. Children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. What about Sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving pleases the Lord. Philippians 4.18, I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. What about sexual morality? Sexual morality pleases God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. 1 Thessalonians 4, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sharing with those in need, Hebrews 13.16, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there's a clear way of living that brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us, I would say, contra-conditionally. It's not just unconditional, it's contra-conditional. He loves us in such a way that we even don't deserve, that's contrary to what He should do. In the same way, we can live in a way that displeases Him. Ephesians 4.30, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God, and the broader context gives us ways that we we can do that. Sexual impurity or greed, Ephesians 4.17. Lying, Ephesians 4.25. Sinful anger, Ephesians 4.26. Stealing and failing to share with others, Ephesians 4.28. Sounds like the opposite of what pleases him, right? Unwholesome or critical talk, Ephesians 4.29. Bitterness, rage, anger, fighting, slander, malice, Ephesians 4.31. All those things God is not pleased with. So the question then becomes, okay, so will God love me even if I never obey him? If his love's unconditional? That's the wrong question. The right question is, if you never obey God, are you a Christian? Okay, that's the question to ask. Our text makes clear that you can't receive Christ and not walk in Christ. We got all kinds of people who claim they receive Christ and don't walk with Christ. And it's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's blasphemy. James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? James' point is no, because it's a counterfeit faith. 1 John 2.4, Whoever says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. True faith changes you. What we do reveals the reality of our faith. Let's put two verses next to one another, okay? First of all, Philippians 3, 9. I am found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God on the basis of faith. That's Paul's testimony, and that's our testimony of believers. That's the gospel of extravagant grace. That's justification by faith alone. That is, before God, my status is fixed, not upon my performance and my obedience, but upon the performance and obedience of Christ. He's my righteousness. But then James comes along in James 2.24 and says, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Say, what's this going on in the Bible? I smell a contradiction afoot. It's not a contradiction. If we set Paul and James down, get them in a room. You guys have a disagreement. We need to talk through this. counseling session with Paul and James. Ding, ding, ding. Bring them in the room. You seem to be saying that we are counted righteous before God by faith alone, Paul. Is that right? Yes. James, you seem to be saying that we are counted right or considered righteous by a faith that's not alone. Would you explain this to me? And Paul would say, let, hold on. Here's, here's what I think Paul would say. Paul would say, here's what I meant. You are saved apart from works, equals, you are saved apart from the merit of works. Your Activity for God, your performance for God is nothing to gain you a status with God. Zero. You are not going to earn childhood status with God by obeying God. It's not how his fatherhood works. He adopts on the front end through the empty hand of faith. But then James would come along and say, when I say you cannot be saved apart from works, I mean you cannot be saved apart from the presence of them. They're not the basis, I agree with Paul. And Paul would say to James, amen, and James would say to Paul, amen. They're talking about two totally different things. They're talking, one is talking about a faith that justifies us, that clings to Christ alone. That's Paul. James would affirm all that. But James would come along and say, but that faith better produce some obedience. Otherwise, it's not faith. It's like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's behind James' shoulders. Yeah, cheap grace. It's not cheap grace. And then Brennan Manning standing behind Paul. Oh, yes, the prodigal just received freely by the Father as he comes home. Yes, Paul. They're just speaking two, two voices that need to be in our head at all times. Not one or the other, both. Just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul was anxious that no one would think their actions could make them right with God. And that's why he said we are justified on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that depends on faith, or that it's on the basis of faith. But James was anxious that no one thought that being a Christian would leave you unchanged. James is concerned that we don't divorce our justification from our transformation as Christians, and Paul is concerned that we not blur our justification and our transformation and think that they're one and the same and think that the transformation is what merits our justification. Well, I hope right now that you're feeling the tension you're meant to feel as a Christian, because it's the tension that this verse produces and that's meant to have. It's the past grace of receiving Christ and the status that we have before Him that's totally on the basis of what Christ has done, but also the present responsibility that we have as Christians to walk in Him. And so the question is, How? how do we go about walking in Him? And the rest of this verse lays that out. And it's rooted in the future hope of seeing Christ. The future hope of seeing Christ. And this is verse 7. So let's look at that. We've talked a lot about this morning, about both grace and obedience, about the freeness of salvation and the obligation Salvation lays upon us, but it's important not to allow that to make you anxious about obedience. So I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, notice, first of all, that the words just and so or therefore and so are in verse 6 for a reason. Okay? Did you notice that in verse 6? Therefore, there's the first word. Whenever you encounter a therefore in the Bible, you always ask, what's it there for? What's the therefore therefore? And the therefore connects us back to verse 5. What does Paul desire? A firm faith in Christ. Right? That's the last words before he mentions therefore. So it's a firm faith in Christ, not a wavering, oh, no, am I saved or not? I don't know. No, it's a firm faith in Christ. And it's out of that firm faith in Christ and that confidence that we've received Him and all the benefits that come from receiving Him that we Walk in Him. We're to continue the way we began. You remember how good it felt to become a Christian? Do You remember that day or that season of life where God brought you to Himself and how your burdens were relieved and you felt a new lease on life and a new status before God and like everything was going to be okay? Remember that? That's how God wants you to live. Just as you received Him, So, walk in him. Remember those days of zeal and freshness and pursuing him and being hungry and everything's new and everything's alive and everything's like seeing everything with new eyes? I looked at trees differently when I became a Christian at 15. It's like, but now I'll pass by trees. Well, tree, who cares? See them every day. It's because I've lost the wonder. Of being a Christian. And Paul doesn't want you to lose that. The loss of wonder, brothers and sisters, is a phenomenal problem for us. It causes so many problems. We forget what it is to be saved. And so we make mountains out of molehills. Or we disregard commands. I mean, it can create a, po- a really negative effect in lots of different ways. We just lose our wonder. Paul doesn't want us to do that. As we receive Christ, he wants us to walk in Christ. We go on that way. We go on depending on Jesus, just like we depended on Jesus at the very beginning. We go on confessing our sins, just like we confessed our sins at the beginning. We all go on believing the gospel, just like we believed the gospel at the beginning. We go on saying, Ain't nobody going to convince me that Jesus isn't real. And we go on holding firm to him and stable and steadfast and committed to him. So what does this look like practically? It means that we no longer work for approval. We work from approval. Okay, this is very important. We're not working to gain approval with God. We're working from our approval with God. I didn't watch American Idol a whole lot, but there's lots of millions and millions of people who did. Okay, and American Idol was one of the most popular television shows of all time, and for the contestants, one of the most nerve-jangling as well. I mean, you just felt for those people, didn't you? On trial. Man, they sing one note off key, off the show. A single note miss could cost you the competition, but winning could change the course of your life. Record deals, sold-out concerts... But at the end of each season, when the competition was over, remember, and the winner had been crowned, she or he took up the microphone and they sang one more time. But when they sang, they were no longer singing to win. They were singing because they'd won. It was no longer a contest. There was nothing to prove or earn. So instead, the chosen and honored performer would sing with all their heart delighting in the gifts that they had been given for the benefit of others. And that's the freedom that Paul wants us to have. That's what it means to walk in him just as you've received him. You have already been chosen and crowned in Christ, so now you can do what you do with all your energy, delighting in whatever gifts God has given you for the benefit of serving others. Competition's over sing sing that's your life in Christ that should be our life in Christ competitions over sing your guts out Amen. become what you are in calling us to be holy God isn't asking us to make us something make up for something we don't obey from a deficit we obey out of fullness we have been filled we are complete we are made alive and that makes all the difference 1 John 3.3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're confident that we're pure. We're confident that we're accepted. We're confident in 1 John 3, one and 2 that we're children of God. That's what we are. And so we purify ourselves. Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. He doesn't say I press on to take hold of it in hopes that in doing that Christ will take hold of me. He says I press on because I take hold to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. In other words, I'm taking hold of and I'm taking hold of to run. Further up, further in, press on like a champion runner toward holiness. One last example, 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Wait, are we sanctified or, or do we need to be saints? Yes. Yes, live into your sainthood. Live into your sainthood. So then union with Christ then as our status, as the, the foundation of receiving Him, then becomes the secret to our communion with Him. It becomes the means by which we can walk in him. Because only when we're absolutely sure and certain that we are loved by God, that we're safe in Christ, will we want to pursue the one who loves us best. For example, when you don't read or pray, God is not like a disappointed school teacher scolding you for failing to complete your assignment. Rather, God is your patient and loving Father. He desires communion with you as His child, so much so that John Owen said that nothing can grieve God more than our hard thoughts about Him, than our failure to believe that He actually loves us. Why does, God gr- what, what, why does nothing grieve God more than that? It's because He knows, according to Owen, quote, how unwilling is a child to come into the presence of an angry father. Would you want to spend time with God if you knew he was perpetually angry with you? No. And this is how much God desires communion with you. That what grieves him most is not our sin, but our refusing to believe that he is so kind and that he desires to be with us so much more than we do with him. If our our soul only knew this, John Owen said, it could not bear an hour's absence from him whereas now perhaps it cannot watch with him one hour. Owen is saying that embracing your union with Christ is what moves you into greater communion with God, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let's conclude by looking at these four participles that Paul gives in verse 7 to help us understand this. Now I want us to notice something before I get to this because this is very, very important. Notice that these are not commands. These are participles. And you may not know, what's a participle? Don't know what that is. Okay, well, I'll explain it. When Paul says in verse 7 that we're rooted and built up in him, establishing the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, he is not saying that I want you to grow. He's saying that you will grow. If you're a believer, you will grow. You are going to be growing in Christ. God will see to it. He expects our interest in spiritual growth, and he expects to see growth itself in believers, and he expects this growth not to be by our own strength, but he expects this growth to be dependent on Christ. So the first participle is rooted. Now, all these are in perfect tense. They're in passive tense, which is something that's done to us. The first participle, rooted, indicates a settled condition on the part of the Colossian believers and it refers to horticulture. It's an agricultural metaphor. He says, God has rooted you in Christ. You are rooted. Walk in him rooted, knowing that God has planted you there. Sam Storm says the following, this world can be pretty brutal at times. In fact, most of the time. People disappoint us. We disappoint them. The flesh gets the upper hand. Satan is relentless in his assault, whether by accusation or temptation. Circumstances get out of hand, and dreams are shattered. Society as a whole just seems to unravel before our eyes. Worst of all, we, be, we, even, we begin to wonder if our lives are going anywhere or producing anything of value. But no matter how tenuous and free-floating float, free my life sometimes seems, I have been rooted in Jesus Christ. God has graciously seeded my soul into the soil of Christ's unchanging and unconquerable grace. My life is rooted in Him. My hope is grounded in His goodness. This is my identity. This is my security. This is my strength when I feel like I'm wandering aimlessly and hopelessly through one disappointment after another. Whatever I may encounter, whether good or bad, of this I may be certain I have been rooted in Christ. Second participle, built up. Comes from the world of architecture. God is building you. Sam Storms, again, commenting on this phrase, says, but what about those times when so little spiritual progress is being made? Again, it feels like I'm stuck in concrete, immobile, immovable, unchangeable. That's when I remind myself once more, I am being built up in Christ. I may not always see it or feel it or be aware of major developments. In fact, there are times when I feel like I'm regressing rather than progressing. If I'm moving at all, it must be backwards. No! No! However imperceptible it may be, I am being built up in Christ. We are ever and always under ongoing construction, a brick here, a board there, but always a persistently being built up divine grace. Yes, every so often we dismantle what God has done, tearing down His handiwork, and experience momentarily though painful disintegration, but God will not give up on us. When He be- what He began by His grace, He'll finish by His grace. The building will be completed. This can be especially encouraging When sanctification seems and our growth and our walk seems so painfully slow. R.C. Sproul says, Sanctification does not progress in a steady line from the starting point of conversion until we're home in glory. For the most part, there's a steady growth in the Christian life, but there are peaks and valleys. If we've been walking with God for a long time, we can find comfort in looking back over the course of our lives and recognizing that God has been reshaping us and giving us real progress in the Christian faith. Nevertheless, to be shaped and brought to spiritual maturity is a long-term experience. We tend to seek instant gratification. We want to know how we can be sanctified in three easy steps, but there are no three easy steps. Sanctification is a lifelong process that involves an enormous amount of, in, enormous amount of intensive labor. End quote. But the confidence is that we're being built up. We're rooted, we're built up. Thirdly, we're established. This phrase comes from the law courts. He says, we're established in the faith. The word here was often used to describe the practice of guaranteeing law contracts. It's fixed. God has bound himself to us. He has formally pledged himself to our growth in the grace of his son. He has sealed the document of ownership. We are his, he is ours, and he will continue to conform and confirm and solidify us in the experience and knowledge of all that he has made known of himself and his purposes for us in Christ. It's a glorious promise. So there's only one appropriate response to all that, isn't there? It's what Paul leaves us with at the end of verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. No wonder that's his final phrase. In the light of such breathtaking realities, there's only one thing we can do, sing thank you. So let's do that. Worship team, will you come forward and lead us, and we will pray together before they... Lead us in song. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning, the dynamite that these two verses contain. I'm sure there are those of us in this room who need one of these words more than the other. Maybe maybe there are some of us in this room who are deeply, deeply discouraged, deeply struggling right now with our standing with you. We're striving. They're striving to be obedient to you. They're striving to walk with you. But they've felt like for a long time that it's all up to them and they've got to earn your love and they've got to perform for you so that you will accept them. May you free them with the gracious reminder that they are qualified and they are forgiven and they are received. May their status before you of receiving Christ Jesus the Lord be Sweet to them today. There are others of us in this room who are really cavalier about our faith right now. We think we were saved at 15 by praying a prayer or we've walked, we've been in the church a long, long time, but we really have no walk with you to speak of. There's no living communion with you. There's just formal religion. And would you speak a a, a word to them this morning through this text? that just as they claim to have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so they must walk in him. And may you remind us all as we rise to thank you and to respond in giving that we are rooted, that we are being built up by you, that we are established in the faith. And may that future hope of seeing you and knowing that we'll make it to the end fuel our praise even now as we respond with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.